You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, guys, uh, happy Mother's Day. And if you invited your mom for a Mother's Day message, I apologize in advance. Okay, so... Sometimes, sometimes the passage lines up with some of the holidays that we, uh, we celebrate. Sometimes I'm able to make little subtle connections where they like, tip the hat to moms and dads. Today, it's not even there. Don't even look for it. You know, <laughs> you're like, hey, what did you learn about your Mother's Day sermon? About a demonized man. Isn't that typical, right? Men stealing a show. So don't even worry about it today. We're not even... We celebrate you moms, but I'm not going to try to pull a rabbit out of a hat. We're just going to keep pressing through uh, the scriptures. Okay, you've been warned. So we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is revisiting a central theme in the Gospel of Mark. And what it is, is Jesus' authority and power over Satan and demons. Now this is a theme that's actually central to the scriptures. In fact, all the way at the beginning in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, there's this strange prophetic promise about the work of the offspring of the woman that will come. And there will be enmity between him and the serpent, that his heel, or rather the serpent will bruise his heel, and his heel 
will crush the serpent. So it's a promise that's introduced way, 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 way back, and now we're seeing unfolding here in the scriptures. Jesus' authority and power over evil. Now, Jesus has healed some of the more visible, tangible effects of sin, like healing people who are sick, removing paralysis, cleansing the leper, that sort of thing. But what we need to remember as we're reading through this gospel is that Jesus is engaged in a much deeper and fiercer conflict, specifically with evil. And so to engage, to further engage with this conflict, conflict, Jesus, uh, or rather Mark tells us that Jesus crosses over to the other side of the sea to the country of the garrisons. Now, this is a very significant move because while the exact location of this place is debatable, uh, we're not really exactly sure where that is geographically. But what, is, what we're fairly certain about is that Jesus has now embarked on a new leg of his mission into non-Jewish territory. This is a new land. This is a foreign place. And we know that because of the language of the Roman legion, but more specifically because of pigs. No Jew is going to be herding pigs in their field. So they are in non-Jewish territory. And so crossing over the other side is a clear sign that the kingdom of God freely crosses borders and moves into enemy territory. And it tells us that there's no place in the entire world that God does not intend to extend his healing reign through Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember the movie Inception, which is almost a decade old now, it centers around a team that masters the technology and technique of accessing people's subconscious through their, through their dreams in order to plant ideas and extract and steal information. Now, I would explain more, but it would literally take my whole 30 minutes to do that, so I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to tell you about a scene. There's a scene where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is explaining to a character played by Ellen Page about what it means to architect someone's dream world. And that you enter into their world and you begin to change it. You begin to morph it. You begin to bend some of the rules within this sort of dream world and And she asks this very important question. She asks, what happens if we begin to mess with this dream world? And he explains that you get recognized. You're recognized. And she begins to reconstruct his dream world, the dream world around them, starting to bend streets and those sort of things. The people that are on the streets begin to notice her. And if you remember the scene from the movie, they're looking at her sternly. They begin to look angry at her. All attention, everyone just stops what they're doing, and they're looking at her. And the the idea here is that the more that the ecosystem is disrupted, the more change that you bring, the angrier the people get. The more that they notice that you are a foreign intruder in that world and they want you to leave. And eventually it results in these people running towards her and attacking her. And this is sort of what we're seeing. Something very similar here in Mark. Jesus has entered onto the scene of humanity to rebuild the world that has been broken by sin. The healing and renewing presence of the kingdom of God has broken in through the person of Jesus Christ, and he is bringing life-altering changes. He is healing the sick. He is forgiving the sinful. He's delivering the oppressed. He's welcoming the outcasts. He's silencing the storms. Jesus is causing a wake in the human story right now. 
And as he's rebuilding humanity and creation, he is disrupting the ecosystem, and Jesus is being noticed. Wherever Jesus goes, it seems that his holy presence invokes this reaction from the unholy. And we see this in this passage as this demonized man rushes to Jesus. He hasn't even gotten off the boat, and he rushes to Jesus, and he says, what have you to do with us? Why are you here? Shortly after, as the neighboring community comes out to witness these events, this man in his right mind, it says that they say, get out of here. You are, you are not welcome here. You do not belong here. You are foreign, and you need to leave. What's going on? Evil is recognizing that King Jesus is a threat to its dominion. A threat to its dominion. And here in Mark 5, Jesus and his disciples are discovering that this is a place that is clearly under the grips of evil. And it it's, it's, has its toll on not only individuals, but now it's grown to institutional and systemic proportions in the community, which we'll get to in just a moment. So if you're taking notes, here's the direction for this morning. What we're going to cover is the demonized man, which is the more apparent figure in this, in this story. Secondly, the dehumanizing community. And finally, the delivering king. Let's look first at this demonized man. Now, as we're reading this account, we're not given much of the history of this person. We don't really know the backstory. What we get are really the details about his present condition. And so for us as 21st century readers, we're probably bothered by that because we love the story. We, we want to hear the story. Well, does he have a history of abuse? Or were there drugs involved? I know that's what you guys were thinking as you're hearing this. What, what kind of trip is he on right now? Were there drugs involved? Was he raised in poverty? Did he come from a single-parent family? What kind of education did he have? Can you tell me a little bit about the trauma that he's faced? We're looking for the diagnosis. Whether or not we are qualified to, by the way, this morning, we are looking for the diagnosis. As 21st century readers, we are scrambling in our minds trying to categorize this man. If you're hearing this story for the first time, that's probably what we're doing. We're trying to categorize this man. We're trying to figure this man out. We're trying to place him in our 21st century categories. Because as a culture, we have almost entirely removed the language of evil from our experience. We often don't have the framework for, quote, evil things. So tormented lives, oppression, murder, extreme violence, almost everything that we will face and almost everything that we will witness in the world is typically reduced down to two things, biology and social impact. Reduced all the way down to that. Well, it was because of their upbringing, or well, it was because of a unbalance or imbalance in chemicals. Now, don't hear me wrong. Social impact is significant. Chemical imbalance, significant impact. But what I want to note is that this over-reduction places you and I and everyone around us in a predicament. And here's the predicament that we're placed in. We're left to live in a world where evil is inescapable, but we no longer have the language to describe it. And we no longer have the language to make sense of it. Listen to what one author, how one author put it. He says, we've renamed the demons of the past, but we have not exercised them. 
We've renamed the demons of the past, but we have not successfully removed them. We have successfully removed the language of evil. But here we are in an evil world. Evil is too great for humanity to simply rename and then rise above. Too great for us just to rename it and move on. Now, it's important to remember that Mark is not giving us medical descriptions. That's not Mark's intention here. But he does, however, give us a very important description about this person. He describes this man as someone who has an unclean spirit, or later we're told, unclean spirits. Now, we've already covered this idea in Mark, but I just, just a quick refresher. In the Old Testament, when something was unclean, it banished that thing or it banished that person from the presence of God and from the worshiping community. Unclean things could not be in the presence of God. Unclean things could not be involved in temple worship. And so what we see in the scriptures is that demonic forces, or as Mark calls it, unclean spirits, These unclean spirits are seeking to alienate people from God and his community. Listen to his words as Jesus appears. What have you to do with me? Why are you here? Immediate hostility, immediate threat. Also, these unclean spirits seek to distort and to deface the image of God and people. In fact, what we see happening in just a moment with these pigs going off into the water really illustrates what these unclean spirits intended to do in his life, literally and figuratively, to run his life off the cliffs and into destruction. Now, it's not hard to see that this man is clearly under the grip of this sort of evil. Look with me in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So here's the description. This is a man who is isolated. He's out of control. He's self-destructive. When Jesus appears, it is clear that he is resistant to the intervention of God. But as we're looking at this description, I want us to pause and to consider something. And I want to ask you to do something. And what I want to ask you to do is to not let the extreme nature of the story put you at ease. To not allow you to feel some sort of sense of comfort that you are not like this person. Because the Bible tells us that regardless of our apparent sanity, and I would argue none of us are sane, by the way, that despite our apparent sanity and our well-put-together lives, that this is a condition that we all face apart from Jesus Christ. See, we are notorious for viewing evil out there and refusing to acknowledge evil within here. But listen to how the Bible describes this issue of evil in 1 John 5. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's not a problem over there. It's an us problem. It's a human problem. It's a global problem. We are all born into sin and evil's tyranny. Apart from the deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ, we are caught and ensnared in the grip of sin and evil. Apart from Jesus, we are on the path of 
isolation and self-destruction. Apart from Jesus, we too are fearful and out of control and even resistant to God's help. Apart from Jesus, here's the path of our life as well. Listen to how one author put it. We are just as battered, though we may do a better job of hiding it behind our coherent words, our well-kept homes, and our smart attire. What's the difference between him and us? We're just doing a better job of covering it up. I don't know how he got here. The backstory is not really clear. But I have to imagine this is not the life that he signed up for. This is not the way he envisioned his life. Maybe he too had coherent words and a well-kept home and nice clothes at one point. Maybe he too was able to keep some of these things at bay temporarily. But here's the subtle yet destructive thing about evil and sin. Evil and sin promises freedom, but in the long run it delivers bondage. Here he is. Evil promises control, but in the long run, it leaves us even more out of control. Evil promises pleasure, but in the long run, it leaves us in a world of pain. Demonized man that's probably not that different than you and I. Let's look at the second group. This this second group, uh, the dehumanizing community, doesn't get a lot of airtime in this story because of the sort of extreme nature of this gentleman. But let's consider this community for a minute. And as we consider this community, let me remind us that we live in a hyper-individualized world. So what that means is that we are prone to miss things when they appear on corporate and communal levels. Typically in the West, Christians are more inclined to recognize evil in people, but overlook evil on institutional levels, especially if we are part of the dominant culture, especially if we are part of the majority And typically, if we're a part of that dominant culture, if we're going to be honest, we, quite frankly, don't care that much about who is negatively affected by the potentially destructive patterns that we consider normal and acceptable. Illustration. So if you're on social media, you've heard recently about this Preachers in Sneakers movement recently. Let me tell you about it. So it's a thing to find pictures of pastors that are wearing very nice shoes and very nice clothes and then to post them next to the price tag. So like some sort of Versace or some like limited edition Nike and then like the $1,300 price tag next to it. So let's, let's, let's just name that, that, that people are abusing church funds. But no one can, well, let me tell you this. I couldn't tell you a single place where my clothes were made from. So it's really easy for me to judge the person with the $1,300 shoes on and totally overlook the people that were oppressed as they made my inexpensive clothes. So I feel good about condemning the person with the overpriced shoes, and I ignore the fact that I have cheap shoes that were made cheap at someone else's expense. You guys catching my drift here? But those are the things that we don't notice. Why? Because we're part of the dominant culture. And we don't really understand how it affects the people sort of, quote, downstream. Whole communities and whole institutions can be affected by evil and not even recognizing it. We're looking for the devil with the pitchfork and the red tail. 
and we miss evil in our midst. And the result, when evil in its sort of insidious way infects communities and institutions, the result is that the dignity and the personhood of certain people is stripped from them. That's what evil does. It, 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 it distorts and defaces the image of God in people. So, as we begin to read through this passage and retrace the story sort of from that perspective, what we begin to see is the way that this, communica- this community has really participated in evil and dehumanized this man. Now, look with me through that sort of lens with, in verses 3 through 4. I'll read it right out of my Bible. Three through four. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. So they were at one point. Not even with a chain. That's treatment. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So that's interesting. He had often been bound with shackles. So this was a pattern. Now, I'm not making an apples-to-apples comparison here, but in my opinion, that sounds an awful lot like recidivism. Maybe a common-day illustration would be to describe this man as as a repeat offender. And now it's easier to cast him off and to chain him up in some sort of prison cell than it is to start working through restoring him. In fact, when it says no one had the strength to subdue him, the word literally means tame. Now, where do, where do we associate that word tame? How do you know that evil has reached an institutional level when people are beginning to be treated like animals? So my question is, I'm reading this passage. You guys still with me this morning? Okay, so as I'm reading this passage, I'm thinking, okay, what came first? Was it his out-of-control behavior? Maybe. Or maybe it was being treated like an animal repeatedly in a way that fed to this problem. Is this nature over nurture here? Is this the result of his animalistic behavior or is it because he's continually been treated like an animal? We don't know a ton about this community or this this neighboring city, but what becomes very clear is that this is a people that prefers a herd of pigs over the restoration of a man. No celebrating this man being restored, just tears over pigs. It's not just the man that puts up the fight and his resistance to Jesus' deliverance. It's actually the entire community. And what I find interesting is it's the community that tells Jesus to leave. Not even the demoniac has the guts to say, Jesus, get out of here. Not even the one that is so clearly overcome by evil would be evil enough to say, Jesus, you are no longer welcome here. The demon trembles in the presence of Jesus. The community says, you are not welcome here. So why did they ask him to leave? Is it because it was this sort of like holy reverence, like, Jesus, you are so holy, we 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 do not belong in your presence, just leave our presence? No, they asked Jesus to leave because Jesus is bad for business. Jesus is bad for business. From Jesus' perspective, this man, this demoniac man, is of more value than the prophets from this herd of pigs. I don't totally understand this whole pig thing. (laughs) But what is clear from the story is that Jesus values the one life over the herd of pigs. In fact, as Deacon Lauren reminded me of this, this this last week, 
Jesus and his disciples risk life and limb through the storm to come to this place for saving one individual and leave. So it is clear that Jesus sees the value in this man as, as more than the prophets from pigs. But from the community's perspective, he is not. They would rather leave him in his prior state and keep their prophets. And that's evil. Like, that's evil. we got to call that evil. And, and it's not hard to see that pattern at work today, how we will turn a blind eye to the mistreatment of people if it saves us money. Little illustration from the 19th century. Now, there was a woman, a famous woman named Harriet, oh gosh, uh, forgetting her, uh, Harriet Beaker Stowe, yeah, that's right. Harriet Beaker Stowe, who wrote the book, anyone remember? Uncle Tom's Cabin, keeping up in your history. So, famous author and abolitionist. So, she would be uh, invited to come share and speak at different occasions, but little known fact about her is that actually her husband, Calvin Stowe was a theologian. And so she would be welcome to come speak at these arrangements, but once in a while they would invite Calvin up to speak. And so she was asked to go speak in England at an uh, anti-slavery celebration. Now, a little bit of history that the British Empire ended slavery before the United States. And so there was a few decades in between. And so this was occurring in those few decades in between. And they asked Calvin to come up and to address the audience. And what they expected from an American was for him to applaud the British for doing what the Americans had yet to do, ending slavery. And so he gets up to the stage, and instead of celebrating the, the, the crowd, he rebukes them. And what he does is he reminds them that despite the fact that they had ended slavery in the British Empire decades earlier, that to that day, 80% of the cotton that was being picked by American slaves was sold, guess where? In England. So here's what he says, you freed your slaves, but perpetuated their plight elsewhere. You just moved the evil around. And the crowd booed him off the stage. They told him what this community tells Jesus. You are not welcome here. People can tolerate Jesus and the way of the kingdom so long as it does not cost the loss of power, the loss of position, and the loss of profit. There's a certain point where we can tolerate Jesus as a community, and then there's a certain point where we realize that Jesus is bad for business, and we say, get out of here. The loss of profit, the loss of position, loss of power, all of which the gospel reminds us Jesus freely gave up in order to secure our freedom. Christ, being in the place of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. In obedience, taking on our form, humanity, even going to the place of death for our sake so that we could be raised up with him. Jesus lets go of power. Jesus lets go of position. Jesus lets go of all of these things. And for those who follow Jesus, he calls us to be willing to part with those things as well for the sake of others. Amen? Now we see, oh gosh. You tell me you keep going, I will. Okay. It's your fault. <laughs> 
We see another way that he's being dehumanized. Look at me briefly in verse 9. I'm going to pick it up. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I find this interesting. He asked a very simple question. What's your name? He responds by saying, I am filled with demons. I'm filled with this legion. Some traditions hold that this is sort of a hostile tactic, and a, sort of a, a military tactic, that when you name your opponent, you gain uh, traction over your opponent. You, you gain the upper hand over them. This, this is true. But what I want to note here is something extremely sad, that when Jesus asks him his name, he's not even able to answer. And there's this, almost this sense that, that he doesn't even know who he is anymore. That he, he can't even, he doesn't even remember his name. He's been in this state, in the grip of evil so long that he has completely lost his identity. Remember, we are in the Roman Empire now. And the Roman Empire is notorious for dehumanization. If you were a Roman citizen, it was actually very rare that you were considered a full person. So where we get this word persona, it meant that you were a bona fide individual. To be a bona fide person, a full person, meant that you would have to be a male, free, head of the household. Then, if you were a woman or a child, you were treated as property. And then there were large portions of the community that were servants. And for, as far as the general population was concerned, these servants were people that would never really amount to anything. They were looked down upon so much that when they were born, they didn't even give them names. What they would do was name them based on their birth order. First, second, third, fourth. Tertius, Cordus, as we see in the scriptures. Or they would take a very utilitarian view. They would give them names like Onesimus, which means useful. This is the setting that we're in, the Roman Empire. And this is the result of evil the loss of the sense of identity, the loss of the personhood. And so as Andy Crouch pointed out, if there's going to be a restoration in the culture, whether it's first or 21st century, it's going to be through the recognition of persons. Now I have to admit, as we look at our city, there's a lot of brokenness. And I don't exactly know what a city like Stockton is going to need in order to bring healing and renewal where, where evil has brought devastation. I know it's going to be a work of the gospel. I know it's going to be by God's grace and his spirit work. What that practically looks like, I, I, I'll be the first to admit, I don't know. But what I do know is that it's going to require a baseline agreement that people are bear, image bearers of God. That people are created in the image of God no matter how broken they are. This was at the core of the civil rights movement. And this has to be at the core of any movement of renewal in our city and beyond. Listen to these words. Jesus says, what is your name? Think about the significance of this. When was the last time that someone called this man by his name? Jesus recognizes that despite his animalistic behavior, despite his out-of-control lifestyle, that he is a person. And by grace, he moves in, he engages him, and he delivers him. Looking finally at the delivering king. Um, I'd like to pull up this next slide, if we have it. There it is. What I want us to notice is that there is contrast in this passage, that what Jesus does is actually in response to the work of evil. Jesus' deliverance is not arbitrary. 
It's not arbitrary freedom. It's not arbitrary salvation. It is in direct response to the devastating effects of evil. And so as we see from this passage that evil enslaves, evil isolates, evil brings about self-destruction, evil dehumanizes, evil strips us, he's running around naked, and evil casts us off. But we begin to see how Jesus actually steps onto the scene and the way that Jesus begins to bring deliverance. The first thing we notice is that as evil enslaves, Jesus liberates. Verse 8 For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus, despite the resistance of the other man, I find that a huge, beautiful picture of grace, by the way. Despite his resistance, Jesus is still at work to deliver that man from demonic forces. Come out of him. We see that evil isolates us. But as Jesus steps onto the scene, we see the work of Jesus is to reconcile us. Verses 18 and 19, and he was getting into the boat. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might go with him, and he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends. Now, every time I've always read that, I've always thought, man, that's kind of jacked up, Jesus. He wants to be with you, and you're like, no, 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 no. But there's actually something really beautiful going on here. There's something beautiful going on here. This is a beautiful picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It reconciles us. This man at this point figures that Jesus is the only one that will take him. Jesus is the, he has been mistreated by so many people. Jesus steps in, he sets him free. So, so surely Jesus is the only one that will accept me at this point. And yet Jesus reminds him, he assures him, you have a home and you have friends. Go home to those, that home, go home to those friends. He restores him to community. We see the evil brings self-destruction, but what we see in the work of Jesus is that he heals. It says that when the, the crowd finds this man is that he is seated, he's clothed, and, he, and he's in his right mind. The word can actually uh, be translated self-controlled. He's totally out of control, and now he is healed in his right mind. Jesus brings healing of body. Jesus brings healing of spirit. Jesus brings healing of mind. We see the works of, of, of evil to dehumanize and to strip him of his humanity. But we see as Jesus steps onto the scene, he restores his humanity. He asks him his name. He reassures him of his personhood. We see the works of evil stripping us and trying to bring shame. He is literally running around naked, just full of disgrace. He's marked by shame. And yet Jesus rids him of its disgrace and he clothes him. We see the works of of evil casting us off, rendering us ineffective. And yet we see the work of Jesus Christ that commissions us. One of the reasons Jesus says, no, you can't come with me, is because he's reconciling him to his community. There's two reasons, though. The other reason is that Jesus has a mission for his life. Could you imagine this man thinking, I am done with. There is nowhere for me to go but down from this point. And Jesus says, actually, your life has meaning and purpose. And he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I love this. According to Mark, the first recorded missionary to the Gentile world was a previously deranged demoniac who's been set free. 
what is our excuse? It takes all of our excuses, and it takes all of our, Jesus, you don't understand where I've been, what I've done, all this baggage, and it levels it. Jesus says, all right, go. I have a plan for your life. I have purpose for your life. Your life has a mission. Go and pronounce my goodness and my mercy to all of your friends and to all of your community. And it says, the community marveled. How amazing is that? Let me conclude with this. In this account, what we see is that evil, this man is delivered from evil, but evil isn't destroyed completely. It moves to the pigs. Isn't that weird? Jesus doesn't just conquer evil. He, he, does, he wins the battle, but the war hasn't been won. It's like hand sanitizer. It just kind of spread the evil around a little bit, right? <laughs> it was in him. Now it's in the pigs. Now it's in the water. That's weird. So I'm thinking to myself, how does Jesus conquer evil? He just kind of shifted it to the pigs, and I don't know, somewhere in the water. What we see in this account is a foreshadowing of how Jesus will truly destroy evil once and for all. Here in chapter 5, Jesus overcomes the forces of evil. But what we'll find at the end of Mark is that Jesus actually yields to the forces of evil. Here, Jesus allows the evil to be transferred to the pigs. But at the conclusion, Jesus allows all of the evil, all of the personal and all of the global evil, to fall on himself. Listen to the words of John Stott. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. How did Jesus conquer evil once and for all? By allowing himself to be conquered by it. How would Jesus overcome our personal evil and the evil of the whole world? By trading places. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what theologians call the great exchange. He would be the one that was bound. He would be the one that was stripped naked. He would be the one that was cut open and tormented by a Roman legion of soldiers. He would be left alone outside the city. He would be forsaken to die. He would be abandoned to the tombs so that we could be set free, so that you and I could be healed, so that you and I could be brought to life, so that you and I could be clothed in his righteousness, so that you and I could be seated with Jesus, so you and I could be accepted and reconciled and restored. Jesus received it so that we could receive all of his good. This is how God overcomes evil and is spreading his liberating reign throughout the world is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now the pronouncement of that good news through his people, the church. And the pattern is very clear from this passage. Jesus restores individuals, not so that we can have our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but so that we can be sent back into our communities and back into the world as agents of change. Spreading that message of mercy and love until Christ returns in order to consummate his kingdom and to end evil for good. He renews us in order to be ministers of renewal. Jesus has overcome evil in our lives and has commissioned us to be those who, according to Romans 12, are not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
in the name of our Christ, by the power of his spirit. Amen.